The second lesson is from the book of Hebrews, beginning in the ninth chapter. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled the blood with blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once, once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, this evening we're continuing in our series on worship, which is sort of different for us. We don't normally do uh, sermon series here, but we've been for the last several weeks trying to trace out the idea of what it means to worship and what it looks like for us as people to worship a holy God. And so if you've uh, 
not been here for the last few weeks, you can find these sermons online. Uh, I was talking to someone who was asking me if there's any way we can record our sermons, and I was like, yeah, we have been. Uh, so, but I haven't told anybody, I guess. So you can, there, you can go to our website. I think you can find them on iTunes. But um, it, it may help to, to listen to some of those uh, if you haven't been here for a few weeks to try to make a little more sense of what we're talking about this evening. Because tonight, we've really reached a critical juncture here. Uh, and I don't want to cover all of the ground again from the last few weeks, but I do want us to orient ourselves a bit again, as it has been somewhat of, of a fire hose, just a lot of concepts coming at us all at once. And all of these things that we've been talking about are getting zeroed in on tonight. So this is what we've been saying for the last few weeks. Worship is our holistic response to the holiness, the uniqueness, God's otherness, and glory, the expression of his holiness, of God. Worship is a holistic response to the holiness and glory of God. It involves all of us as people. And we said that worship cannot ever be a means to some other end. Worship is always an end in itself. The goal of worship is not to make you a better person. It is not to give you a stronger sense of community. Those are byproducts, and if they happen, that's wonderful. But worship is worship for worship's sake, for the sake of God alone. It's always its own goal because to worship is to be made alive in the presence of God. Worship is always an end in itself. But as we saw a few weeks ago, we have a huge problem. Because of our rebellion, it is now impossible for us to be in the presence of God without being consumed. And so in making a covenant with Israel, we saw that God created a way back for his people to be brought back into relationship with him in the tabernacle. That whole thing was a doorway back into relationship with God. But as gracious as the provision of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system was, we have to recognize that it was still highly, highly restricted. The people could not enter the sanctuary and experience God's presence. Only the priests could. The priests could not enter the Holy of Holies, and experience God's presence. Only the high priest could. And even he couldn't do it whenever or however he wanted. It was only once a year with very specific guidelines for how he was to enter, which we looked at last week, with the blood of bulls and goats. I don't know if you caught this in our reading from Leviticus 16 last week, but in that atonement ritual, once a year the high priest comes and he, he makes atonement for his sins, for the sins of his family, and for the sins of the entire community, but in Leviticus 16, we're told that he's also making atonement for the sanctuary. He's making atonement for the holy of holies because of the people's uncleanness. He used to make atonement for the altar itself. You see, the holiness of God demands perfect and true worship. So much so that even in the highly regulated, highly restricted worship in the tabernacle, the rituals themselves fell so far short that even the rituals had to be atoned for. It's staggering. We saw last week that there is no worship without sacrifice. But the blood of the animals was always a symbolic representation of the life of the people, right? Remember all the way back in Genesis when, at, when God tells Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He says what? For in the day in which you eat of it, what happens? You will surely die. 
And from that moment on, our life has been required of us before God. And the blood of the sacrifices at the tabernacle and the temple was always a symbol of the life of the worshiper. And now what we should be seeing, and I think what the writer of Hebrews is taking pains to show us, is that for all of the regulations and rituals, we in ourselves have not attained true worship. Even in following down to the letter of the law, Aaron and the high priest that came after him could not attain true and perfect worship. And in some sense, this is the key way, I think, for us to conceive of sin, is to fail to attain to true and perfect worship. I mean, this is what Paul says in Romans, right? Anybody, Sunday school? For all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God, Right? We have not attained to God's glory. So true worship, which is our due, it's the the least that we owe, we can't even get that right. We have fallen so far short of God's glory. That's what his holiness requires, and yet we have fallen short of it. That's what sin is. But here's a caution, okay? Are you ready? You can't think of this in terms of God being needy, and petty and demanding all of your attention all the time. It's not that. It is that we as his creatures were designed to live moment by moment with every single breath in worshipful awareness of God's transcendent beauty, his goodness, his holiness, his uniqueness, his otherness, his glory, his power, and his might every single moment. To have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is not like taking the world's worst trigonometry test and failing it, thereby eternally disappointing your cosmic professor. Okay? God's not wearing tweed with super cool elbow patches and shaking his head because you didn't study for the final. No, it's that to sin and fall short of God's glory is sort of like being George Costanza. I mean, in many ways, it's like being George Costanza. But specifically, Seinfeld fans... I had a friend tell me that, this, that the crowd might be too young, and I, I thought, really? Come on. Am I getting that old? All right. So you guys remember that episode when George finally has the attention of a beautiful woman, and yet he's not satisfied. He's not satisfied. He, he tries to incorporate the three main loves of his life, food, TV, and sex, all at once. This is us, okay? This is us. A beautiful woman has invited us to be intimate with her, and we decide to watch TV and eat a sandwich in bed in the middle of all of it. That's what it means to have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? I mean, the reason that marital union, that sex between a husband and wife, is the best icon of Christ and the church is because in those moments, you are at once giving yourself completely over to another person in covenant in promised lifetime commitment. And in that context, you are being completely enraptured by the pleasure of that self-giving act. That's worship. Do you see? All of life was designed to have been lived before God with nothing less than an orgasmic quality. I promise I won't say pleasure again tonight. And we will have stuff for our kids to do soon in the summer, I promise. Sorry about the weird questions you parents might be getting on the way home. But to sin is to turn away from that kind of focused, 
in rapturous beauty and to just sort of yawn. Is there anything else to do around here? Makes no sense, does it? And because of the depth of our rebellion, we have never been able to truly worship. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, even in the divinely appointed worship of the Old Covenant, all of the blood and water, every day, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, generation after generation, none of it was able to actually cleanse the consciences of the worshipers. None of it. In many ways, the tabernacle system that we looked at last week served less as a solution to our problems and more as a highlight of our failure as worshipers, revealing to us that we have been enslaved by sin. We've been imprisoned by it, unable to worship, and we need redemption, which means to be bought back. We need someone to buy us our freedom. And so in Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 11, if you have your Bible, turn back there, underline it, highlight it, memorize it, internalize its meaning. It says, but when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, not a part of this creation. And he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. As we have been building our understanding of worship, we have now hit the nerve center of Christian theology about worship, and that is this. Jesus Christ alone has offered true and perfect worship to the Father. He's the only one. In the history of the universe, he is the only one. This is a watershed in our understanding of what worship is and how it's possible for us to enter into God's presence without being consumed. And we're going to track the various rivers and streams that flow from here in the next few weeks. But for tonight, I want us to briefly consider how it is that Christ alone has offered true and perfect worship to the Father. And and just in that one verse, the writer of Hebrews here points out two main things. Christ has entered the greater and more perfect tabernacle, the one not made with human hands, not part of this creation. And Christ entered not with the blood of goats and calves, but entered the Holy of Holies with his own blood. We'll start with the first one. If you remember back when we talked about the tabernacle, when God told Moses what he was to build, he said that Moses was to build it according to the pattern that I will show you. And we read in Hebrews that week that the tabernacle was a copy of the reality. It is a shadow of the true place of God's dwelling, right? And then we talked about the fact that that Christ, in his own words, in the words of the gospelers, and in the words of the writer of the Hebrews, reveals himself to be that tabernacle, that real heavenly place. And now we we have to work hard here. We have to hear the symphony because there's a lot happening all at once. And the, the, the musical theme is that life is found in the presence of God. True life. But as unholy, unholy creatures, we cannot enter his presence lest we be consumed. But here's the percussion section. It's going. Worship requires sacrifice. Worship is costly. Worship requires holiness because God is holy. The woodwinds are going. The tabernacle with all its sacrifices pointed to the heavenly reality that the New Testament tells us is Christ himself. He is the true tabernacle. This is what the writer of Hebrews is getting at here. 
In being the true tabernacle, when Christ was raised from the dead, he takes on his resurrection body, which is what? One that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not a part of this creation. It is a part of the new creation. Remember, we saw a few weeks ago that Christ made his way into the Holy of Holies through the curtain that is his flesh. Now the brass section is reminding us that the sacrificial system of the tabernacle made a really big deal about the animals being without blemish. And they're starting to blare louder and louder. Christ was without sin. He was the only human being ever to draw breath that lived every moment before the face of God in worshipful attentiveness to him. Sinless purity, and the strings are starting to echo. Not only did Christ enter into the heavenly holy of holies in the tabernacle of his new creation resurrection body, but he entered it not with the blood required for his own sins, because he had none. And not with the blood from brute beasts who had no way of rationally participating in what was happening. No, Christ entered with his own blood freely given. He did it himself. And now the first chair violin is starting to spark out a little bit. If Christ is the only perfect human being to have ever lived, and if he is the eternal Son of God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, and if the blood of bulls and goats could make people ceremonially clean, what would the value of Christ's blood be? What would its power be? It would be priceless omnipotent. It wouldn't have to be shed again and again like the tabernacle ritual of the Old Covenant. It would only be shed once. And it would have the power to buy back every single soul imprisoned in sin and death and to cleanse each human person from the fingernails to the core of our sooty, sinful souls. But now it turns out that the symphony is a rock opera because I can't remember what other sections are in a symphony. And so the electric guitars are turned up to 11 and they're just wailing out. It's grace. It's grace. It's all grace. Jesus alone has offered true and perfect worship to the Father and he's turning around and giving it to us. What have any of us done to affect any of this? At best, nothing. But the truth is it's way worse than just nothing. Christ has done it all with his precious, priceless blood, and he alone has offered true and perfect worship to his Father. If you heard me preach a few months ago on Genesis 15, which we had read for us this evening, then you might recall that what is happening between Abraham and Yahweh is a covenant-making scene that ancient people would have been fairly familiar with. When you wanted to make a really, really, really serious promise with another party, you would essentially do what Abraham and God do together. You would take an animal, you would slaughter it together, you would set the pieces apart, the blood would run together, and you both would walk through it, and you'd get the blood of the covenant on your feet, and you would essentially be saying in that act, may it be done so to me if I don't hold up my end of the bargain. May I become like this animal if I don't do what I'm promising I will do in covenant with you. But in Genesis 15, Abraham is fast asleep. Covenant always requires two parties, and yet Abraham is doing nothing. He simply watches as the God of the entire universe promises to bless the world through the seed of Abraham and makes a covenant with Abraham, but it is God alone who walks through the blood. 
That's what that firebrand and, and, the, and the, the bucket of fire represent, is God's presence alone walking through the pieces of the sacrifice, getting the blood of the covenant on his feet alone. Now, for God to commit to holding up God's end of the bargain isn't super risky. God doesn't lie. He does what he says he's going to do. He keeps his promises. But for God to commit to holding up Abraham's end of the bargain, and by extension, Abraham's wily descendants' end of the bargain, way back in Genesis 15, God already signed his own execution letter. Because he promised to keep up both ends of the covenant, knowing that his sinful people would fail. And it's as if for centuries the entire universe has been holding its breath until John the Baptist exclaims, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sin of the world. And we all say in response, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.